Hey, what is up, guys? Sorry we missed y'all last week with the podcast trivia, but I assure you we are coming back hot this week. We are uh, fresh off of Western Hunt Conservation Expo in Salt Lake City. We were showing off all of our new stuff that we're releasing here. We got the new pack line coming out, the Ultra 400. It's looking sexy. Um, got a lot of good feedback on it this weekend. Um, you know, we released that podcast last week. If you guys haven't listened to that, that's got all the specs of our new stuff. Um, I would definitely recommend checking that one out. Um, but yeah, Western Hunt, really fun. Uh, it's a really fun thing to do, especially um, for, you know, there's a lot of companies in the outdoor industries that aren't um, in big box stores. You know, you can't just go to Cabela's and check them out. Uh, so these expos are a really great way to get your hands on that that thing that you've been looking on, looking at online, really get your hands on it, see what it's all about. So if you guys get a chance, make sure to um, to check one of those out when you can. All right, podcast trivia. This week, we're giving away a fully outfitted Divide 4800 in gray X-Pack. When I say fully outfitted, I mean hip belt, harness, frame. It's got the hip belt pocket on there, so it's ready out of the box, ready to go. Um, you'll, you'll be able to use it as soon as you get it. It's got a large hip belt on there, so maybe if that's not the size for you, then you can't, but you can always uh, hit us up and we'll get you one. Um, it's gray X-Pack, something that we're not selling anymore, so it could be like a collector's vintage item. Um, so you might want to get your hands on it. I've also, uh, I would recommend taking notes. For those of you that have been paying attention, the answer, the correct answer to the podcast trivia that is released in the Seek Outside Adventures Facebook group every Thursday at 3 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, people have been answering it like within a minute. So I think some of y'all are taking notes, trying to get the, the jump on everybody, which is awesome. Love to see it. But all right, guys. Uh, so this week we are doing our a podcast with Doug Duran. Um, I know we just had him on the podcast, but he's such an awesome guy. We had to have him back. Um, and this is going to be on a completely different subject. I know CWD, for those of you that know about it, you've probably heard about it at nauseum. So this one's, we tried to stay away from that as much as possible. This is going to be about, this podcast is going to be about um, private land and um, some of the issues that both private landowners face and public land hunters face and, you know, some of the solutions um, to that issue. I mean, I'm sure for all of you Western hunters out there, you've, uh, you've glassed up a herd of 300 elk on just, you know, 50 yards on the other side of private. Um, and there's like, you know, 70 guys just lined up on the edge of the fence waiting for them to cross. But, the, you know, they're never going to cross. That's just not how they do. Elk are too smart. But... This podcast kind of goes over some of that um, and possible ways that you can uh, that you can get your feet on some private land, some untouched private land. So I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. Um, remember, we got the email podcast at seekoutside.com. We'd love to hear feedback on the podcast and make sure you, uh, you give us a subscribe. And, and um, if you want to leave us a review, that would also be awesome. But all right, guys, enough of that. Let's get to the podcast. Here we go. Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. podcast. Yeah, there's there's no question. 
Two wrongs don't make a right, but three lefts do. Uh, well, I got stalked by a mountain lion, uh, made a fishing pole out of a lodgepole pine. Falconry and bird dogs, can they coexist? Oh man, and do they. Shitty weather and lots of bears. That's what this podcast is about. Why, when you're hunting with a friend, is he always three or four times louder than you? Some people are just wired that way. Then they just spaced it. I'm watching it snow. You're, you strike me, Kevin, you strike me as the kind of guy who can just like go, all right, let's do this. Uh, well, we'll see. <laughs> so... I, I take it we're rolling, right? We are, yep. Little yep known, we're good. Little known fact, probably to most people, that I grew up not that far away from the Duran farm. Um, I grew up 45 minutes from the Baraboo area, approximately. Is that right? As, be more specific, please. Be more specific, not really. Uh, Plainfield, Wisconsin. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why don't you want to be specific about Plainfield? <laughs> no, well, it, everyone's always about, oh, isn't that where Ed Green is <laughs> yeah, That's from? exactly right. Uh, First thing that went through my mind. I know that yeah, area, yeah. I know that area though, and it's very nice up there. Uh, uh, <clears throat> and, um, yeah, so it's always got the Ed Gein stuff. And then, um, you know, my grandma who I lived with, had told me about the Ed Gein stuff when I was a kid. And um, that Ed Gein came to visit often. Oh, and then he really? would leave, that he would leave before, and she was a large lady, and that he would leave before my grandpa got home. And then uh, 30 years ago or whatever, whenever Silence of the Lambs came out, I was, I was reading a... Uh, article in, I think it was like Rolling Stone or something, and it was talking about how the character was based very much on Ed Gein. Yeah. And so I went to the bookstore and I pulled out a book and I started reading about his trial. And um, yeah, he dug up my grandma's sister's grave and that was like one of the first ones, yeah. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> That's wild. Hey, we could do a whole podcast about Ed Gein. I, I, I don't want to say that I'm Ed Gein curious, but it just seems like through life what uh, uh, has happened. Of course, um, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock movie, um, What the House, my gosh, why am I not thinking of the name of the Alfred Hitchcock movie? He was loosely based on that. Psycho was also. Yeah, yeah, Psycho was, Psycho was loosely based. <laughs> trying to think whatever other movie was loosely but you know psycho he had the mother yeah issue right yeah. so this is the seek outside podcast where we discuss <laughs> obscure serial killers yeah. uh, <laughs> as as if the world needed another true crime pro- <coughs> podcast out there oh, we, we got you world <laughs> right right exactly and how they've affected our lives or whatever i also i'll tie it into hunting here okay Rumor has it, hmm. and it was in that book that I read, that um, Ed Gein did not hunt, but he gave people lots of venison. Yeah. Hmm. I, That's I very suspect. I read that, too, somewhere, too. Um, like I said, I'm not, I wasn't Ed Gein curious or anything, but growing up in Wisconsin, and that would, it would just come into conversation, you know. 
I have a, a, a friend, a friend of a friend, lost his wallet in a movie theater when we were kids. And the only way that he could, because there wasn't an identification card or anything, and he was like 14, he didn't have a driver's license. The only way he could identify it was to tell them there was a picture of Ed Gein in it. Mm. So, mm. That, That's kind of suspect, too, <laughs> well, right there. That guy was a little suspect, but that's a different story. I, I feel like back in the 60s, 70s, the, um, the Midwest was batting a thousand percent on serial killers. Seemed like all all the famous guys came from the well, Midwest back in the day. Oh, they carried it through into the nineties with Dahmer and yeah, stuff. Yeah, with Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, yeah. he was. You know. uh, yeah. Well, anyway, um, yeah. There, there's actually a book called Death Trip Wisconsin, and um, uh, heck, there's. I mean, it wasn't serial killer stuff, but I can you know drive you around this area and say this happened here and this happened there, and um, some of it's pretty. Um, um, gruesome, uh, some of the things that happen. Mm. So, but I guess that's all part of it sometimes. Um, yeah, sorry. So land share. To go down <laughs> that hole too far. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, yeah. So, <laughs> so for the listeners, if, if you haven't caught on, we got Doug Duran here and we got Kevin, Wisconsin boys, and we are going to talk a little bit about uh, an idea, I would say, that Doug Duran has been kind of cultivating over there at his family farm for a while. Um, land share. You want to dive into us? Give us the whole the whole rundown on the on the land share concept. Sure. So it's actually called Sharing the Land, and there is a website, SharingTheLand.com, and an Instagram page, SharingTheLand.com, and uh, we're it's all still under development, but um, boy, very very uh, very close to, uh, you know, full launch here. Um, and it's really based on an idea that, um, uh, is as old as hunting and private land is. And that is, um, exchanging labor for access. Um, and, and, and even more, uh, based on the idea that, uh, Eldo Leopold, um, a program that he started many years ago called the Riley Game Cooperative. And it, the quick story on the Riley Game Cooperative is that about the time that he was buying the farm um, over in Baraboo, which is about 30 miles to, um, to the east of me here, about the same time he uh, was a professor at the University of Wisconsin. And he was out tooling around in the uh, in the Madison area looking for some places to hunt. And um, and Kevin probably knows this. You get a little bit south and uh, a little bit south and west of Madison in the Verona area, and you know there's big grassland bottoms there, and it was pretty good pheasant habitat. And pheasants had been planted, and um, and they had taken hold. So there were uh, there were there was a, a reproducing um, there was a reproducing uh, uh, catch of pheasants there, and. Uh, so Leopold says that he was just out kind of tooling around and it sounds to me like he was out looking for a place to go hunting. And he met this guy, uh, Reuben Paulson farmer, and he was talking with him and, and asked him about hunting and how the hunting was and that sort of stuff. And Paulson said, well, we used to have more pheasants than we do, but we have a couple of problems. And the biggest one is, uh, trespassers, uh, poachers is actually what he called them. 
And uh, Leopold said, well, you know, looking around, i begging your pardon, but you also have a little bit of a habitat problem here. There, you, your habitat could be improved. So what they ended up striking upon was this idea that Leopold and some of his buddies from Madison would come out there and work on that farm and work on conservation improvement projects, um, specifically for pheasants. And, and uh, of course, if you, if you build pheasant habitat, you're also building habitat for other wild animals other wildlife and um that in exchange for that that they would have the opportunity to hunt that land and they went so far as to uh um in those days you could have game farms and they ended up uh, getting a game farm license and uh posting the land and um helping the farmer to control his 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 private land um and it became a it started with that one farm and ended up um Eleven different farms in the contiguous farms in the Riley area, and all kinds of people involved, including the farmer, um, the farmer's family, and the farmer's friends, and those uh, and, and folks like that. Once a year, they would get together. So it was this cooperative venture in conservation and hunting um, and uh, access. And uh, it was interesting to to that the Riley Game Cooperative isn't something you know all the stuff that's written about. Leopold that we know about Leopold you don't hear that much about it and I don't know exactly why that is um I think some of it is is because he started to write about um you know the, the, what became the Sand County Almanac and but um this was he actually became a, this became an outdoor classroom and education area for him as well um eventually um even though it got as big as I said it did, you know, 11, 11 farms and several thousand acres, eventually it faded away and, and it was sort of for three different reasons. One was Leopold died, um, uh, World War II was in there, and the third one really was that access wasn't really a problem in those days. Access to private land, and it was pretty simple. You can knock on a door and, and uh, boy, you know, more often than not, a farmer would say, sure, go ahead. Well... Um, you know, times have changed and, and some of it, um, I, I don't get even want to get into for better or worse. I just am, am much more about, well, it's just sort of the way it is. Um, and so we've ended up developing, we've, we've shared our, our farm with people for a long time, but, um, what we're trying to do is take this idea, um, a little bit wider and, um, and to provide a framework so that, Landowners and access seekers can work cooperatively and collaboratively on a piece of property um, uh, to improve conservation there, but then also share in the bounty of that conservation. Um, and that's the basic idea. Um, again, a lot of this is as old as uh, as old as as, as time, but um, a few things have happened. And, and Kevin, you might, I, I know you're younger than me, but you might be aware of this, that uh, in my, this is my, this was, I just finished my 50, 50th year of hunting. And uh, in those 50 years, we went from an area where it was rare. In fact, I can remember the first person from away who owned land here, somebody who came from the city or whatever and bought bought land. And now 65% of the land in my county is owned by folks who don't live here. Um, so there's been a change in land ownership. A lot of the land is still, most of the land that has always been farmland traditionally still is uh, farmland. There's ownership has changed. You know, agriculture has changed dramatically, you know, and 
Kevin's younger than me, but, um, but when we were kids, um, there were a lot of small dairy farms and most of the places that I was able to go, um, hunting besides our place were just owned by people that I, uh, that I knew. And it wasn't, um, land wasn't owned for recreational purposes or hunting purposes. It was just another part and something else that was in the farm. Well, um, recently the statistic is that Richland County, where I'm from is, uh, 65% of the land is owned, is, is, uh, is owned by people who don't live here. And 95% of, of the hunting land or the habitat land is, is privately owned. So if you're going to do anything about conservation, if you're going to do anything about providing more opportunity for hunting, you're going to have to work with uh, private landowners to be able to do that. And um, so the concept is simple. We'd like to see people become more educated about conservation. Um, I go to a lot of, um, the last couple of years of COVID aside, I go to a lot of, and I'm involved with a lot of landowner education, um, field days and that sort of stuff. And a common thing that comes up at those field days is, boy, I'd love to do timber stand improvement or invasive species control or habitat improvement. Man, it seems like a lot of work. How am I going to get that done? And, you know, NRCS provides some funding and cost share. And um, in Wisconsin, um, the Department of Natural Resources provides some funding and cost share. Um, all of those things are are, are available to people. Um and really the manpower uh, to do it is, is the other part of it. And, and personally, having been a landowner my entire life, or my family owned land my entire life, I know that the, 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 um, the work of owning a piece of property is something that you sure like to have some help with. So what we're doing, what we're doing with sharing the land is formalizing um, or providing structure to um, to those kinds of arrangement that may have been in the past where somebody's just knocking on the door and say, Hey, I'd help you and help you bail hay or whatever for that opportunity to hunt, um, or to have access for whatever kind of recreation. So we've actually, um, are formalizing that a bit more to protect both sides. And, um, and to, hopefully what we're doing is developing relationships between access seekers and landowners. Um, and, and really, if you think about it, about it as a cooperative, that's, that's really what we're talking about. Yeah, when when I was a kid, I used to just walk out the door and go hunting. And I knew all the farmers around me, but I had, like, almost implicit permission. You know, it had almost been, like, historical, like, your dad hunted here, your uncle hunted here, or whatever. Um, I don't think that would hold true today. So how does it work? Is it is it a, an individual says, hey, Doug, I would like to come help you bale hay, and can I hunt um, this week? Or at, at, at a more, my, I guess, minutia level, how does, it, how, does it, how does an individual get involved? Well, first of all, you have to go to our, in order to be a part of our, um, and, and, and I'll, I'll put this out there for, for folks, I'm, I'm pretty much full at my place. I have a list of Kevin, you can relate to this. It's like getting season ticket, getting an invitation to the, or working up in the list at the Duran Farm is sort of like getting uh, season tickets for the Green Bay Packers. Um, Good luck with that. <laughs> and, uh, and and that's really you know sort of what's happened because of well, first of all, we've 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 been we've had uh, controlled uh, access uh, for a long time, 
uh, through friends and family. Um, and I have a big family and, uh, um, but also because of some of the, the work that I've been doing in public, um, I get a lot of, um, questions, a lot of requests, everything from, are you an outfitter guide? Will you, you know, I'll pay to come and hunt your place to, I'd been really interested in this. I'd love to learn from you. Um, I have a list of a hundred and over 150 people right now who've actually asked for permission. And this year, Kevin, we had, um, uh, almost 40 different people hunt the farm and it's only 400 acres. It's not like it's, you know, like I control, uh, it, which is a big piece of property in Wisconsin, but it's not like it's, you know, it's a never ending supply of game and, and, uh, and opportunity and with limited seasons and all that. So it's a hard, it's a, on our place, it's a tough invitation. But one of the things that I've found is, and I don't have any problem getting people to come and help me with work. But um, one of the things that we have found is that there are other landowners who are interested in this, and, and there are other landowners who are, also, who are also doing it. You know, access has value. That's the long and the short of it. Um, one of the other things that's changed pretty dramatically in, in, in this area, and I would say, you know, east of the Rockies, you know, the, the, uh, certainly east of the Mississippi or, or from the Great Plains uh, east, is that um, what, when I was a kid, what we used to call rough land, you know, the, the woods and the bottoms and the stuff where game is, um, that was, uh, it, 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 it wasn't particularly valuable. Um, now as you go across the country, the rough land is commanding the same prices that the cropland is because of the demand and the interest by what we like to call people from away, but then also people around here who are like, I would like to have a piece of land that I can call my own and I can do work on it and I can hunt it. And, and, and own it. so it, it's that, that, that private land, um, uh, uh, sort of that private land dream. Um, the dream can turn into a nightmare as some of my, I, I do, I provide land management, consulting and contracting services. And a lot of my landowners say this, say that the, the, probably the number one thing that they say after they own land for a while is, man, it's a lot of work owning a piece of property. And so sharing land gets them some of that work. If a access seeker were as access seekers sign up and we're getting landowners to sign up, they do. The first thing that they do is, um, they'll be given a, uh, sent a form called a conservation resume, which is a fillable form. And they'll be able to just start to, it's a, something that they can develop, um, like to tell a landowner about themselves. Um, everything from the skills that they have or the skills that they'd like to acquire to, um, where they, what their hunting interests are and what their conservation interests are. And then, <coughs> excuse me, and then on the other side of it, you've got the landowner intake sort of doing the same thing. And what's been interesting so far is that we have landowners who are very interested in also um, filling out a conservation resume, a, a, a con conservation resume. Um, and they have some interest in, in hunting some other properties as well and having expanding their opportunities. But then we're also um, asking landowners who are interested to fill out a landowner intake form or a land intake form, a land profile. And because of the way the hunting seasons are, especially in the Midwest, um, let's use turkey hunting, for instance. We have six turkey seasons. Now, for instance, I like to turkey hunt. 
And um, I have a lot of friends who like turkey hunt and, and some of my cooperators, but I always end up with some room. You know, there's six seasons. You're not necessarily going to get prime time, but a landowner might say, well, look, you know, deer hunting's kind of full, but I do have opportunity for um, turkey hunting in the spring or maybe, um, like we really did fill up this year with um, during our antlerless hunt because we're really trying to control um, deer populations. Um, that there's opportunity there. But, you know, the number one co- question that I, ha- I will, will tell people to think about is what contribution have you made or are you willing to make to conservation? So I was watching Meat Eater a couple of years ago because I did a caribou hunt last year and I flew with 40 mile hour. Oh, yeah. And um, you were on there. I was. Um, with Mark Kenyon. Yep. And you were talking about, I forget what it was, but Steve made some comment like, Doug, how many deer do you have per X amount of space? And it made it sound like you had an incredible amount of deer. Well, um, I'm actually on the County Deer Advisory Council for our county. And so all this, and, and our, these statistics are come out, they just rattle off of my, my tongue because we get all of that information spoon fed to us, but you can also get it on the, um, on the, DNR Deer Metrics website. We have 65, look, listen to these numbers. 85% of Richland County, where, where we, and it's very typical of Southwest Wisconsin, 85% of Richland County is considered deer habitat. 95% of that land is privately owned, and there are 65 deer per square mile of habitat. So on a, a, a square mile of habitat is 640 acres, right? That's a section. So 65 deer. And I've had people say to me, there's no way that's possible. We killed 40 deer on 600 acres this year. And on Monday afternoon, we flew a drone just to get a feel for what we had left. And we counted 80. Yeah. So yeah, it it is. It's a remarkable, um, it's a remarkable resource. And at the same time, we have this um, specter sort of hanging over it, which is chronic wasting disease and prevalence continues to, you know, the disease continues to spread. The, um, prevalence continues to rise and it all is really being driven by populations, um, because of sort of the nature of, of chronic wasting disease. Well, that's one part of it, but quite honestly, the other part of it is that the ecosystem can't handle it. Um, geez, Kevin, you know, I mean, being from, I know it's been a long time since you, you've, you've been here or, or lived here, but, um, but, um, we have, especially in Southwest Wisconsin, we have sort of this perfect storm of, and it used to be a real positive thing, um, perfect storm of great habitat, great water, minerals in the water, um, and then agriculture, which, you know, was just the perfect thing for white-tailed deer, and so um, our uh, doe reproduction um, rate is like 1.4, 1.5 on average per year. So every deer is, you know, produced, is reproducing one, you know, one, time, one and a half times itself every year. So even with something like chronic wasting disease that at some point and in some areas is beginning to have population level impacts, the deer, we can just keep producing deer and what's happening, unfortunately, is in, in deer herds, in the areas where the prevalence is getting real high, um, the, the herd is getting younger because of the sort of the nature of chronic wasting disease. 
But then the other part of it is the ecosystem is suffering. I'm um, managing not only our land, but for some of my clients. And if you're in the business of trying to regenerate red and white oaks, um, it's a real tough business to be in when you have that many deer per square mile. Um, deer mm-hmm. love white oak acorns, and they love to browse on red oak seedlings. So oaks, are, <laughs> oaks have a pretty tough go of it. So all of those things are, are, are kind of a part of this whole, um, this whole idea. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to, I kind of want to just jump back into the, the landowner more that part of it. I don't want to go too di- deep into the CWD aspect because we will be having another podcast coming out on that with, with you, Doug. Um, but earlier you had, you had mentioned that, uh, nowadays with landowner permission, it's a lot harder to get. Um, do you have any reasons for that? Well, access has, uh, well, I mean, access has value, right? So that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's a part of it. Like I said, the, some of it's just the economic, economic part of it. Um, there, uh, cropland in our area still produces, um, you could, you could buy cropland in this area, um, and lease it back out and get a return on investment of about, well, it used to be 5%, but it's no more, more like 3 to 3.5% three now because uh, because prices have gone up and and rents haven't gone up uh, uh, proportionately. There's nothing that you can do on a piece of, um, on a piece of, uh, of rough land, of woodland or swamp or, you know, undeveloped land um, that, that um, can justify any kind of return on investment. I'll give you an example. Our farm um, has been in my family for 118 years. My parents bought it from my grandparents who bought it from my great-grandparents. My siblings and I um, were fortunate enough and through a lot of the hard work of the family that it just became, we, we inherited it. My mother died um, three years ago and we had a, a good um, structure in place for for uh, passing it on. The value of the land straight through is at about, it's 400 acres and it's worth about $5,000 an acre. There is nothing, nothing that I could do in that, and not on that land to um, justify that value. So there's not a return on the investment. So some of it's just pure economics, right? And so if you're a landowner who owns, like a farmer who owns land and you've got rough land that's a part of it or hunting land that's a part of it, um, that land gets it generally is, well, in Wisconsin at least, is taxed higher than ag land. Um, the cost of ownership is higher. So it's just the economics don't work. I mean, that's, you know, that's some, some of it. Um, uh, the demand for uh, good hunting land is real high. And, and, you know, we could go down that rabbit hole if you want to. I mean, um, when I was a kid, you know, I started hunting 50 years ago. I didn't know anything about any celebrity, uh, you know, hunting, hunting shows weren't a thing. Hell, we barely had television. Um, and, uh, which, I mean, I'm not joking. Um, we had one channel, but that it wasn't really a thing. Right. And so when wildlife became more, um, I don't know what do you want to call it more commodified or that, 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 you know, a big giant buck is worth something and that attitudes changed about hunting. That was a part of it too. And I'm not, I'm not 
I'm not here to say, well, that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's the way it is. And how can we, um, um, you know, how can we change that? The other thing is, when I was a kid, it was very rare. Um, it's kind of like Kevin was saying before. It was very rare that someone from away, you know, from the city or wherever, um, owned land in the area. I remember the first person who um, who bought land here. He was a guy from Milwaukee, and he put up no trespassing signs. And soon after that, farmers started putting up signs that said, if your land is posted, stay the hell off of mine. Um, and uh, so that's because so folks aren't buying land, you know, they're protective of it, right? And now people have become protective of their deer or, you know, or, or whatever that, that happens to be. And I understand that. Um, and uh, so I think that, you know, that's, that's a part of it. But the other thing that I've learned in my work in land management for absentee owners is that there's a real interest in doing well by their, you know, doing good by their land. And that is doing good conservation stuff. Most of the folks who buy land in an area you know, like this and other places in the Midwest, and I've, you know, been around the Midwest and talked to folks all around the, the Midwest and the East, that they're real interested in doing good on their land, doing good conservation work. Um, and then they have this realization that either I'm going to spend a bunch of money to do it or I'm going to have to find some people to do it. And they're in, I'm not, this isn't, you know, sharing the land isn't, this is the way everybody should be doing this. This is one way that we can kind of take that age-old idea but Kevin, when you said that, uh, you know, you could kind of hunt wherever you wanted, that if that farmer said, you know, I need a little help building fence here this afternoon, that you'd say, yes, sir, what time would I be there? And, you know, so that was sort of, and so it's, it's, it's that, you know, it's that sort of thing. And so it's adjusting over time. I don't, um, I have some concerns, quite honestly, about the gentrification of the rural landscape, but, um, but I also see all these positive things. Absentee landowners who have the wherewithal to buy land um, people who've sold their land and they're, you know, happy. I know some people who've sold eighties and 120s and hundred acres and they got $5,000 an acre for it for land that, you know, they paid a few hundred dollars an acre for it. They're, and they're skipping off to retirement, you know? Um, and so I think it's just part of the evolution of all of it, but I'm, I, but they're, so, you know, so that's a part of it. Um, are you are you worried at all about because um, it seems like you hear about it more often now, uh, where family farms are you know it comes to the point where there's three siblings and all the siblings can't agree that you know this <clears throat> piece of land is valuable enough to keep it in the family so they sell it off to some developer and it becomes houses. Are you worried about that at all for I mean conservation's sake? Well. Um I think that's something that, I mean, you know, the population in the last 50 years is, is, is a heck of a lot more and the, the, yeah. the, the areas around the cities are, you know, there's a lot of development pressure on, on land around the cities and that sort of thing. And, and then certainly out here, um, there's some of that as well. Um, I, I, uh, been, I'm pretty hearkened by, um, I have some friends, uh, who are in the, uh, um, conservation easement business, um, and that is that they, they, you know, they are, uh, assessors who, um, assess the conservation value of a, of a property and, and then, um, landowners are, are doing that. Um, as you can imagine, the, there's a lot of pressure. Hell, I can give you my own personal story. My, there, I have, um, four brothers and sisters. There's five of us that own this, um, our farm together. 
we have are of the philosophy that it's not ours, it's just our turn because it has been in our family for so long. But the pressure is real. How do you how do you look at a piece of property that's worth two million dollars and go, okay, if I had two million dollars in the stock market or two hundred two hundred million dollars in some sort or two million dollars, I'm sorry, in some sort of investment, um I could realistically expect, expect to make five to ten percent return on that. So, are we going to make five percent, five to ten percent annually on this um, two million dollar asset that we have? Well, no, we don't. So, some of it is you have to have a little bit of a mentality of, well, that's, well, as, as I said, and I say many many times, and uh, it's not ours; it's just our turn. And we do have that conservation ethic, right? Um, but I, I understand, and I'm not going to say that someone who's uh, a family who goes, you know what, we don't, we can't agree on what we're going to do. Let's, um, let's sell it, and maybe you know their life changes. I know some old farmers who sold off, and they're, they, you know, they're having a, a a good retirement because they didn't have kids who were interested in it. And the truth of the matter is, agriculture, and I'm sure Kevin can attest, can attest to this too. Agriculture isn't like it was 50 years ago. When I was a kid, I heard you say that a couple of times too, Kevin. When I was a kid, you know, that's what happens when you get older. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you say that a lot. When I was a kid. Um, and uh, But when I was a kid, you know, heck, it was uh, lots of little dairy farms around here. Well, those don't exist anymore. Agriculture has changed dramatically. And so this, um, uh, I would call it, you know, some of it gentrification of the landscape, um, you know, where people are buying. I know a lot of, you know, local people who also own 40 or 80 or 100 acres and they have a house there and they work, you know, 15 miles away in town. Um, and that uh, affords them the abil- of, of ability to do that. So all of these things have tor- sort of happened. And is it a concern? Of course, it's a concern. But I think that we also, um, we should also realize that there's opportunity there. I saw I saw a childhood friend that I used to ride bikes with and stuff when I went back to Wisconsin in 2016. And his dad farmed the land across the street from our house. And I think it was 160 acres and he had a few other things. But he said that, you know, they were basically just forced out by all the big producers at that time, that, that it became that the smaller farmer just really couldn't exist anymore. And... Because I was like, well, what happened to the farm and what happened to this, right? And I was at I was at their farm, but they weren't farming it. You know, the land and all that that they had farmed was now being used by big corporate interests. So mm-hmm. that was what he told me. Yeah, and and, and that's happened. I mean, when 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 God, I quit, quit saying when I was a kid, but you know, we we used to stack hay on wagons and put it in the barn and. You know, and, and all of that. Well, now, I mean, you have to have a family of kids to to get the chores done on the farm and milk the cows and do all that. And now, I know um, a father son operation that's running eighteen hundred acres. It's two guys. You know, it's just that's a part of. And I'm not saying that's necessarily big agriculture, but that's just a change in agriculture. That said, so, oh, go ahead. No, no. So I was going to step back to the CWD thing, and I don't want to deep dive in that but what percentage of the deer are coming up positive in your neck of the woods well in richland county um our our percent positive of deer tested 
Um, this year is just a little over 20%. Um, and so that's, those are deer that are being voluntarily tested by hunters. So any hunter who wants to get a deer tested in Wisconsin can get it tested. Um, we don't have mandatory testing anywhere, but we get a lot of deer tested. In our county, we killed about 6,000 deer this past season, and about 1,400 were tested. Um, and that's a pretty good sample. Um, across all of the, the age groups and both sexes. Um, in, uh, but I'll give you an example of in my neck of the woods. So for uh, previous four years to this, we killed 120 deer. We killed a thir- 30 deer a year on our farm, and we got every one of them tested, and we had five positives in four years. So if you do the quick math, that's between 4 and 5% of the deer were positive. What was interesting about it um, was that <clears throat> there were uh, – Three bucks and two does of those five in four years. The first one that tested positive was a two and a half year old buck. The second one that tested positive was a three, a two and a half year old buck. The third one that tested positive was a year and a half old buck. Um, and the fourth and fifth were both those. One was a year and a half and one was a three and a half year old. So it was interesting, right? I mean, you hear about CWD that it's older deer that are testing positive. And that is certainly the case in endemic areas like south of us where there's a lot more, uh, the, the, the disease is much more well-established. I felt like that showed that we were sort of on the, um, the fringe of where it was moving through. That younger deer, not our quote-unquote our deer. And during that, Kevin, during that period of time, we were killing five-and-a-half-year-old bucks and six-year-old does, and none of them were testing positive. Those were, you know, sort of the nature of whitetail. As they get older, they don't move as far. Younger deer move further. So it, it, kind of told me anecdotally and then as the deer biologists uh, you know told me well no it's sort of deer behavior as well that we didn't have um that it wasn't established um as well so you know keep shooting as it were and uh, this year we killed 40 deer on the farm seven tested positive so solidly 20 percent and six of 10 antlered bucks tested positive so 60 percent of our bucks tested positive which is very similar to uh, the numbers in the endemic area about 20 miles south of us. Wow. Um, what do you guys, what do you do? I know you had the, the doe drive this past, past year here. Um, but do you do anything on your landscape, like in terms of like cutting trees or, or manipulating the, the habitat to cut down on CWD? Well, is there anything the, you can do there? The number one <clears throat> thing you can do is, is, uh, is there's things that you shouldn't do. And one of them is mm. to use bait. And it's illegal to use bait piles, which was legal here at one time. Um, not something that, that we ever did. I always felt like using bait piles was sort of like taking uh, sand to the beach, you know, sort of like with uh, a little bit like um, a little bit like with um, – food plots too. It's like, gee, it's farm country. Why would I plant corn, you know, or beans or whatever? It's everywhere. And so, um, uh, but that's kind of gotten to be a very pot that has been very popular for quite some time. Right. So, um, I, we quit doing, we, I, I don't plant food plots anymore. I still do, um, all our trails get seeded down with good wildlife mixes. That's good for all kinds of, you know, turkeys and, and deer and everything too. So I'm not real. I don't, Yes, I discourage them, but we discourage them with very small pieces of copper at very high velocity, and that seems to be yeah. really effective. That's, that's <laughs> the best way to do it. 
So um, we, yeah, so we killed 40 deer this year, um, you know, in a, in a square mile of, of property. And, um, um, yeah, the problem with private land, with it being so much private land, is that not everybody is going to have that same attitude. You're going to have some people who are like, oh, I'm only shooting bucks. You're going to have some people who say, we don't let people deer hunt on our property because we're going to let nature take its course. I mean, it's really interesting that you can have this wide variety of of interests who are really kind of all, um, in my view and the view of the, the scientific community and all this, are sort of not doing the right thing for um, for controlling the disease. And um, so, you know, that's part of it. We, um, because I'm regenerating red and white oak on our property, I spend a lot of time up there, you know, discouraging deer, as I said, with a small piece of copper. Um, and uh, so we make note of that. Um, but we, we don't really do anything that manipulates the landscape other than, um, I mean, gee, if anything, our farm is, you know, super habitat because of the, the, uh, conservation that work that we've done and our all our cropland is in the conservation reserve program which is wonderful habitat for all kinds of, of, of wildlife um, and then it's surrounded by um, lots and lots of farmland but um, so you know so it's you know it's sort of that um, population control is the number one thing that we can do population and demographic control how far does the population have to be manipulated? You said you had 65 deer per square mile. Are we talking like 50 gives a good reduction? Or are we talking like 20 deer per square mile? County or? countywide, if I was king of the world, um, we would reduce that to 25 to 30. Wow. And that would um, reduce prevalence. That would also, um, that would, should should also allow a, um, a diverse population, um, a, 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 a dispersed and diverse population in terms of demographic and, and all that. And um, my biggest concern is a big population. It's not my biggest concern. Is my, my biggest concern is a healthy deer herd. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're interested in, you know, I, 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 I've, I've written about this and, and, and I'll, I'll just say this, if, and I've, I, I have some um, acquaintances, I wouldn't call them friends, but I have some acquaintances who are in the uh, animal welfare uh, business. And that seems like that's what it is, too, is, is a business. And I was like, well, why aren't you guys, why aren't you animal rights people concerned about our animal welfare people? Why aren't you concerned about CWD? I didn't really have a very good answer for that because it's a horrific disease for what it does to a deer. Um, yeah, let alone a whole but, population. Yeah, let alone a whole population. So I think that animal rights people should be concerned about it. I think that people who are just concerned about conservation and and our resources in general should be concerned about it. Because think about this. I can go out this evening and take a drive around here and probably see 100 deer on a a drive, you know, on just on a drive and going out and taking, you know, around the block, as we call Mm -hmm. it. And, uh, man, in the higher prevalence areas, you know, we're talking about 35 to 50% of that population. So you look out across that field and you think to yourself, 35 to 50 of those deer have a disease that is going to kill them in two years. And during that period of time, they're going to keep spreading it to other deer. That just doesn't seem like a recipe for, you know, a real positive recipe. Um, so yeah, the animal welfare though, people though, you would be pulling up out a word 
that they don't want to hear, which is culling the herd. Well, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, yeah. Well, so, and, and just let me finish the last couple of things. Well, the other part yeah. of it is, is what happens is when deer, when CWD gets high in prevalence, it, it, uh, it, it, the, the population becomes younger. And one thing we know about if you're, so if you're a person like my, my friend, Mark Kenyon, who's, you know, a real and big giant buck guy and Hey, guess what? I'm a big giant buck guy too. There's nothing I enjoy more than hunting and, and killing a big giant buck. We killed a, a friend of mine killed a really, just a beautiful 10 pointer, you know, buck of a lifetime this year, 160 plus inches, five year old deer with CWD positive. He looked perfectly fine. Um, but as time goes by, and we've seen this south of us, that those deer become more and more rare because deer because prevalence gets so high as it does, the deer are getting the disease that are younger, they're not getting older. So if you're a guy who wants to kill big giant bucks consistently, then you should be concerned about CWD also. Um, yeah. You know, and that's not even to talk about the the possibility of it jumping species, whether that be to cattle or to groundhogs or or to humans. You know. Yeah. Um, okay. Again, I want to, enough wanna, about CWD. I, I love, I love the CWD information, but we, we do have a, um, we're, we got a big podcast coming out with it. So I want to kind of, I, I want to, I have a couple questions that I want to knock out for, for the common hunter, you know, that is having trouble finding luck on public land and wants to, you know, ask a landowner, for permission what are the what are the what's the biggest thing that you look for and now it sounds like you kind of have more of a system you know you got a waiting list for people to get on your your property but maybe just at the beginning when you first had your farm Mm -hmm. uh what were the big factors that you looked for um when somebody was asking you for for permission for you to say yes like what what made it so that you were going to say yes to somebody a lot of the first people that um I mean, I grew up with permission, right? So that yeah, people, of course. You know, yeah. you know, so, but that was a part of it. So you just knew that you didn't have some Giacomo that was coming in because it was the son of, or the you know the father or whatever. But as time has gone by, um, I've done a few things where I invited a bunch of people to come and turkey hunt, and and I, people I didn't know, you know, I mm-hmm. just like put a thing up on social media and said, "Hey, you interested? You know, this is what I'm doing, and would you like to to do this?" tell me something about yourself. And one of the questions that I asked was, what contributions have you made to conservation? And, or what contributions would you like to? So some of that, you got it, some people with some experience already, right? And, um, and so that was, you know, uh, kind of, kind of important. So um, I don't like, uh, the kinds of things that I want to hear from people are, that I'm interested in, um, I'm interested in learning about what it takes to properly manage a piece of land, um, to to do the best that we can for the habitat. I've I've had some folks uh, before we started doing sharing the land and and and, and building this out, ask me about, boy, you know, because I I've told people don't send me a letter. I'm not going to answer that. Yeah. And I get, and as I said, I got these messages on social media and emails and stuff and I answer them all, but I, you know, I explain to them, you know, what, what's going on. But, um, so kid had a really good question for me. This was a college kid and he says, um, how do I meet landowners? I'm not real good at going and knocking on doors, you know, and, and nobody can face that rejection after a while because you know, yeah. you're going to be told to, no nine times out of 10. And I said, so, um, 
the Elder Leopold Foundation, the UW Extension, the Wisconsin Woodland Owners Association, Wisconsin DNR, um, the Nature Conservancy, there's a whole litany of pheasants forever who have field days. And those are usually aimed at landowners to teach them about some sort of conservation practice, be that timber stand improvement, wildlife habitat improvement, tree planting, invasive species control. Um, and I've been a part of some of those days, and I've also been a part of some focus groups with, uh, with the University of Wisconsin. They're asking landowners, you know, what, what, your, what the deal is. You go to one of those days, and this was, you know, and I suggested this pre-COVID because they, all of a sudden those days started drying up. You go to those days, and you're learning something, right? You're learning about all any of those things, timber stand improvement, whatever. Um, some of them, uh, Wisconsin DNR is one of them, um, and uh, the Leopold Foundation actually uh, offer um, chainsaw safety classes. And so you become chainsaw safety certified. So anyway, you can go to this thing, and what you'll hear at some point, well, one of the things that I noticed 20 years ago when I really, 25 years ago when I really first started going to these things, man, landowners are old. Um, and, uh, I, you know, it really was. And it's just like, it was interesting, especially like the Woodland Owners Association, a lot of these people would have these little books with all their trees and their stuff in it. You know, it's like they were showing you pictures of their grandkids, but yet it was their land. And I was like, and, but, and I heard it at, Every one of them, without fail. How do I get this work done? And I told this college kid, look, go to one of these things, and when somebody says that, that's when you raise your hand and step forward and say, my name's Jimmy Smith, and um, I came here today to learn about timber stand improvement, invasive species control, and all that. I don't own any land, but I'd love to have the opportunity to do some of that work on some property somewhere. And man, if I could have the opportunity to go out on that land and maybe hunt it a little bit, that would be great. So there's a place where you can really meet landowners. And those are the kinds of interactions that are going to help um, folks. So I really encourage non-landowners to go to those conservation field days. We're ha- we have those on the farm. So you, you said that you're full up. You got a, you got a long waiting list. And there's a, several other farms involved. Do they all still have a fairly large waiting list as well? Or well, is it fairly realistic that um, Bob, who wants to get involved in conservation, has done some things, you know, done some projects, can go trade some work for some hunting? The shorter answer is um, I've been surprised at how many landowners are interested in this. We are just really getting this off of the ground. The website's in place where our first newsletter is about to go out. People are going to be able to start signing up. Um, but it was sort of like um, like Zillow, right? You know, if, if, if you're going to be selling houses on Zillow, you, whether, you know, as you can imagine, there's a lot of access seekers and maybe there aren't as many landowners. But what, what's been really gratifying so far is that we've been really been seeing a lot of landowners who are interested in it. So what we're providing then with sharing the land is a framework within that they, they can – because um, I'll tell you, the number one thing that landowners ask is, how can I trust this guy or the gal or whoever? I mean, how do I, mm-hmm. how do we do this? And so one of the things that we've done is developed with the help of an attorney, uh, an agreement um, between them, and which protects both sides, sort of. Because most landowners will say, you know, I'd love to have some people on here, but the last time I did that, you know, I had this guy come in and he, you know, screwed up. And nothing screws it up for everybody else more than, you know, than... 
you have a, a experience, good, good experience yeah. with 25 good people and you get one Giacomo in there and, and, and that screws it up. And that's kind of what happens. Um, but there's a fair number of landowners who are interested in this. And um, so the opportunity is going, to, is, uh, is going to be there. And over the next three months, we're actually doing our first official um, public kickoff at Pheasant Fest in March at um, uh, Pheasant Fest in March in um, Omaha. And um, that's one of the, the uh, so that's, you know, we're going to be recruiting landowners there. We're already recruiting landowners in this area. And I've had a number of landowners who have signed up who are interested in, you know, I have a little turkey hunting, I have a little of this, I have a little of that. But so we've put an agreement in place that is, is for the both of them. We have a, a form, a conservation resume form, and then the land um, uh, intake form. And what we will then do is, is kind of sort through those and match people up. Nice. Well, and I, we were talking about this last time, um, for, for anybody out there, you know, if you're, if you're against the whole manual labor thing and you're a hunter, we were talking about it. It's so valuable to, to be on a piece of property, like in the deer woods or in the Turkey woods in, in an off season where you're not usually there. Like we were talking about last time, like I, you know, we had a, we had a private land lease that we used to elk hunt on and every summer, Every spring, summer, we'd go fix fences uh, for the cattle. And, you know, we'd be there, you know, May, June, whenever. And it's just this this shoulder season when you're not typically there. So you're seeing all the plants, all the different animals that are, are there in a different season. You're seeing where the elk or, or deer or whatever you're hunting, you're seeing where they are in a different season. So it's it's super – I mean – if you're if you're looking at getting if you want to dive into the whole hunting thing and be in conservation and be in just the whole cloud that is out outdoor lifestyle style that's that's probably the best way to get into it because you're learning so much I mean nobody knows more about their land than a farmer so well first hunting is kind of manual labor that's true um, yeah. at, at some <laughs> especially level. out west yeah. here I don't know I don't know about I don't point. know about you guys east of the Mississippi but <laughs> yeah no, no, sure no, I got I got just a question. Kidding. This isn't just a Wisconsin thing, then? Or no, our, our yep. Our goal for this is that it is is something that's going to be accessible nationwide. And really, the idea is that we're providing a framework, a, a meeting place for people. Um, initially, we are going to do the matching, um, and um, eventually, once the whole back end of the uh, website is built, as you can imagine, it's a pretty big sorting mechanism. If we start to get into thousands and tens of thousands of people. Um, to put, you know, to put people together, and then we just sort of leave it up to them to deal with it after that. But here's the example that here are the, not only the example of our place, but many other properties as well, and we're developing those stories right now. Um, and that it would be in other parts of the country as well, you know. And it really is that acknowledgement that access has value. Land needs mm-hmm. land needs to be managed. It takes work to do that. Um, my friends at, uh, at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, both in Wisconsin and nationally, one of the things that I like gr- about that is those guys all wear those public landowner T-shirts. Those folks wear those. And you know what? Then they go out and act like landowners. They go out and do work mm-hmm. on their land. And that's really gratifying to see. You know, you see them doing those volunteer days and doing that sort of thing. And that's really what we're talking about here on a on a private land basis. So then we develop, a, the, hopefully what will, I, I mean, what I see happening is that we develop a relationship 
people will develop a relationship and stuff is going to go wrong and there's going to be some people that didn't work out. But um, mm-hmm. that, um, there, uh, that relationship and that trust will develop um, sort of like it did when, when, you were, when we were kids that, that you could just, I mean, people knew you and they knew that. Yeah, you know? <laughs> they, 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 just, they just knew and I, I literally walked out the door with my gun or my bow and arrow and didn't even really worry about it. I wasn't going to outwalk the people that knew me <laughs> at the time. Yeah, that, no, that's, so, a, that's right. Um, so it could be in Illinois, it could be in Nebraska, it could be in Iowa, it could be even in Washington State or Tennessee or someone like that could still get involved in this. That's exactly, you're exactly right. And, and, um, and, and that is happening. I mean, I, as we've started talking about this, I've been, um, it was gratifying to have people reach out to me and say, well, we're doing this at our place. And here's an example how, you know, there's the other end of it, right? When we start talking about, well, how much, what's it worth? You know, what's a day's worth of work worth? How much, well, that's kind of up to the individuals involved, but I can tell you what, how much it costs the least piece of land here in Richland County. Um, I mean, if you really want to go right down to what the dollars and cents of it are, I can tell you, you know, it's $80 an acre pretty much around here. If you're going to, I mean, if you were going to lease our farm year round and we weren't going to do it, you were just going to get it, you could expect it to be 60 to $80 an acre. Um, so 10 acres. Well. 100 it, acres, six yep. to $8,000 as, as a hunting lease. Yep. I have a friend down the road, he's dear, my best friend in the world. He's got 140 acres. He's actually got 160, but he's got 20 on the other side of the highway. And the 20 on the other side of the highway is where he hunts. And he leases his 140 on the other side of the road to a group of guys, and he gets $8,500 for it. So that's, you know, straight straight up 60 bucks an acre. Um, and that's a lot him, of manual labor. That's yeah, <laughs> and that's not for everybody, right? I mean, that's the long and the short of it is um, when we first started doing this sort of thing, um, my expectation was that anybody who was hunting with us needed to come and do a day or two of work. And then this old family friend moved to Florida and he's like, dude, I can't do this. You know, I can't come up and do a day's worth of work or whatever. And, you know, quite honestly, it wasn't that handy anyway. Um, he is, um, he, he just doesn't come back up anymore. It's just kind of a long story, but he's a great guy and we still love him and everything, but it's just like, you know, he's coming up for a day or two of deer hunting, but what he would do every year would be send us a deer stand or, you know, kick in some money for uh, fuel for the tractors or that sort of stuff. And I mean, and the truth of the matter is, fellas, I mean, I'll, I'm just going to tell you that, tell you the, you may have heard Ronella talk about this at one time. I actually lease my farm for hunting for 12 days. There are, I have some bow hunters who lease our place for 12 days. They get to pick what 12 days they want to hunt. Can you imagine what days they're hunting? It's kind of right there at the, the end of October, yeah, the first part of uh, November. Yeah. But that, that that's a that's a good segue. I was I was curious how you and the whole meat eater crew got involved because your your show or your land property has become a relatively consistent um, star on the meat eater show. Yeah, um, Steve and I had a very. Um, he, I remember him saying on a podcast one time, a dear friend of mine just told me that he started leasing his place, and I don't know how I feel about that. I, and we sat in the old farmhouse out there that you had seen on Mediator TV, and, uh, and I sat there and I said, how are you making your living, Steve? And he goes, well, I, you know, I mean, we all know how Steve makes his living. Um, and, uh, 
And so let's see. We've got companies that are selling rifles that are making money at this. We've got companies who, who are selling um, bullets. We have companies selling clothing. We have companies selling tents and backpacks. Um, we have, uh, you know, there, all of the things that go along with hunting, you got to buy. But somehow you expect the one thing that you need to go hunting, land, to be free. So when those guys come, I will say this. Um, I have an arrangement with, with Meat Eater. It's very, you know, straightforward, and it's not a lease agreement or anything. I'm, you know, I'm, they pay to have access to the, the farmhouse, and, and, and they, I mean, it's, you know, it's evolved over time, as you can imagine. I remember the first time Steve and Dan Doty and Mo Fallon came, and, you know, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty uh, loosey-goosey. I, I think Dan was kind of doing everything in, the, in, a, in a spiral notebook, you know, and um, he, he says, yeah, I feel like we ought to give you some money for, uh, you know, for staying here at the farmhouse for five days. I mean, this is what it would have cost us to stay at a hotel or something. And I said, yeah, great. And so he handed me some cash and he goes, oh, and can you sign something here that says you just gave me, that I gave you some cash? Well, now there's contracts and, you know, and, and all of that kind of stuff because it's, it's, you know, it's business. It's, and that's the long and short of it, like it is with my, uh, the guys who lease for me for 12 days. Um, so, um, the arrangements that I have with them tend to be more about, um, my work with them. I mean, when I work, I get paid. And as much as I like going hunt with those guys and everything, um, and having them there, I'm, it's, I'm being paid and the farm is being paid for the use of the facility, you know, the site, but they're not paying to hunt. Um, and I'll tell you what, the first time that, that skinny fella, um, came to the farm and hunted with me before anybody knew who Steve Ranella was, he's the first guy to grab a shovel and shovel shit and help me load cattle. And we did all this other stuff. I mean, he is, then that's, and that's, you know, sort of the, the, the nature of it. Um, pretty much anytime anybody comes, Cal was there in December. He, uh, he helped me with some chores. Um, and you know, so, you know, threw into that as well. And, uh, the guys who lease from me for those 12 days, bow hunters, they're, um, great guys. And they started doing it five years ago and they had approached me to her, you know, a couple of times. And I'm like, I don't know how I feel about it, but then it came upon me that, Oh, wait a minute. What these guys will pay for 12 days. And you know, when I was saying that per acre rate, that's year round full access, that's it. And so it's very different when it's just for 12 days. Um, but it pays the property taxes on the farm for the entire year. And they get use of the farmhouse and all of that. And I remember Jack, he, this is a great guy, you know, a guy I've become friends with now, but we had a business arrangement first, and now we become friendly. He goes, so I want to understand something here. We pay you X amount of dollars to come here and hunt. And, and they don't really have to. I mean, they come and set their own stands, and they do all of that. You know, they, they come and hunt it like it's, and they've really gotten to know the property. He said, but then the day after we're gone, you have people come in here who don't pay anything. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's the way it works, Jack. And he's like, okay. <laughs> but they get pick of the litter, right? They're there. And you know, when they're there, they're at the end of October, the first part of November, they've all killed, you know, uh, biggest bucks of their life on the place. And I actually give them money back for every doe that they kill. So it's become, it's become a, it's a hybrid of all of that sort of thing. I know lots of folks. I mean, I know farmers who are like, you know, they used to let people just hunt. But then these guys come and offer me, you know, $40, $50, $60 an acre for, you know, for 
300 acres is like, I'd be a damn fool not to take that. And then they're not, then they're not, and then those guys are controlling it. So right or wrong, it's just kind of the way it is, right? Because of the value of it. And you can, we can walk, go back into that. I remember when the, when uh, one of the early television celebrities killed a big giant buck down by spring green. I mean, and he paid to do it. He came in and saw this deer, I don't know, driving around an area that nameless, but it's actually, you know, pretty well known around here. And, and he saw this deer and he wanted to kill it. And he talked to the landowner and he says, and I'll give you, you know, I don't remember what the number was. It seemed like a King's ransom at the time. If I can hunt this property and he hunted it for four or five days and killed that deer and it got filmed in the whole thing. Well, all of a sudden people are like, wait a minute. <laughs> and then of course you guys probably know about Buffalo County, which is North of us here. Um, you know, where the, really the whole big giant buck Monarch Valley thing first started. Um, and that's, I mean, it's a huge economic driver up there. Sure. The land is getting tied up, but they're still farming up there. And they're, I mean, it's the, the restaurants and the, all of these things that a small community doesn't, you know, isn't supported by agriculture anymore is actually being supported by hunting now. So it's changed. Yeah. But. Well, hunting's a part of tourism here as well, right? Oh yeah. I mean, here we have a huge summertime tourism economy a skiing but there's hunting season as well and mm -hmm. those people are going out to eat having some drinks staying in a hotel maybe buying gear stopping at the store so yeah and uh, but still, when you flew into when you went up to and flew into the uh 40 mile river area hell there's a whole taxi service up there that's built around it right i mean yeah yeah it is you know it certainly is so and that was an awesome trip Oh, I'll bet it was. I'd love to hear more about that off air or yeah. whatever. Yeah, great. God, I that was it was a remarkable experience. Anyway, um, so I'm just trying. What we're trying to do is to is to realize that there are changes going on. That there continues to be access ten continues to be the number one impediment for new people getting into hunting. But then there's this opportunity for education as well. I. Um, I, I have some, Kevin, do you remember when you got your hunter safety certificate when you were a kid, you got that little patch yeah. you put on your jacket. Yeah. I don't know what it was like where you did it, but where I did it was my dad and his buddies who, who put this thing on and we had to go several nights, several evenings as I remember it. And you had, you went through all the safety stuff. And then at the end, you had to do this little field test with them. And these guys were like strict as hell about it too. And um, I just remember like, oh my God, am I going to fail this test? You know, and, um, and I won't be able to go. And then I got that. I wish, I still wish I had that patch that went on my, on my, I had a red hunting jacket and I still wish I had that patch. I don't, but, um, now you can take a, in, in, I think in the rush sometimes to get people into hunting, um, you can take an online test this evening, uh, Wisconsin DNR hunter safety test, never had a gun in your hand, pass that test and go hunting tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a very important part <clears throat> and and possibly one of the biggest parts that the land share, you know, initiative can, can kind of bring into the hunting space because I had multiple experiences this past year of, of people that had, you know, I mean, they had just passed their hunter safety course and then they get out in the woods. And, and I think it's like the biggest thing, especially out West here, you know, where there's there, you know, you can be walking on a flat 
plain of, of juniper and then you just come to a giant cliff, right? That's like the Black Canyon of the Gunnison over here. Yeah. Obviously, oh, you're not yeah, going to yeah. be hunting there. But there's there's all these terrain features that can be very dangerous. And, um, you know, if, if somebody can be able to go to a, a piece of private land in the mountains and, and, you know, get a rundown from the landowner of, of, hey, look, you know, like if you go up this ridge, make sure you stay high. Otherwise, you're going to end up in this canyon and you're not going to be able to get out or this this or that or you know there's there's all sorts of things that um landowners i mean it's like like a landowner knows their land better than anybody else out there so there's so much that you can learn from from just landowners especially if you're a new hunter um do you do you have any properties interested in the land share out west here um not as as of right now, we have had people write in who have said, yeah, yeah, we're doing this. And um, one was in, um, uh, well, it doesn't matter right at this point because until they're, until they're on board, I guess it doesn't make any sense. But we've had an interest in it, um, you know, um, in different, from different parts of the country. But honestly, most of it's from the, from the east. You know, the other thing that I wanted to mention, though, was um, so we had um, almost 40 different people hunt the farm this past year, turkeys um, and deer mostly, a little bit of small game. Um, and uh, the people who are part of my, who are my core group, my, co-op, my, my core cooperators, and that's about a half a dozen people um, who, I mean, I call them up right now and one of them would show up out here. And they're, they're pretty local. I mean, they're, you know, they're within 20 or 25 miles. Some of them are from further away. And they come in at very specific times. But um, one of the things that I promised to them, and this is one of the things that we're also pitching to landowners, is, um, uh, in fact, one of my cooperators just became the R3 coordinator for the Wisconsin BHA. So, um, and he's brought uh, mentees. He's brought new hunters to our place. If you've got a new hunter, um, and this is one of the other things that we're encouraging landowners, if, if one of your cooperators has a new hunter, um, consider having opening your property to that person to be able to bring a new hunter, someone that you know and trust, bringing someone in, bringing them up in in the opportunity in the right way. Um, that's that's good because <clears throat> first off, I want to address a couple things there on the western part. If someone has elk on the property, it's probably a fat chance that they're going to let someone get off for working on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's like uh, you want to work for four months as a ranch hand right? Um, for an opportunity at elk. Um, but also for new hunters, um, especially those that have not been exposed to it through their family or parents, it's a, it can be a really steep learning curve. Mm-hmm. So by taking out the need to go to a mountain range and just worry on hey, let's go out and get this year hunting, this 100 acres here. There's nothing super scary. There's no cliffs you're going to fall off or or whatever. And you don't have to pack it out five miles on your back or any of those logistics. It seems like that will really help with recruitment, just getting people to get in the process of it without re- removing some of the hurdles and logistics of, having to do your own self-guided Western public land hunt. Right. And that's, I mean, and that's not the jumping off 
spot anyway, right? I mean, you're not going to fly in. You, you don't get to get in a jet when you're learning how to fly right away. Right. right. Um, you know, it's the same sort. It's the same sort of thing. I mean, I grew up, um, and, and I'd like to see more of this. Quite honestly, I, my first experiences hunting were going along. And that going along was going along on small game hunts. And then we started with small game hunting. There seems to be this uh, desire to just like jump into the deep end of the pool sometimes. And, um, you know, from my perspective, a white-tailed deer hunt is, is, is not a bad place to start. But I would like to see it start more with like a, you know, like a, just a tag along. My daughter um, went hunting with me many, many times um, before she said to me, you know, Dad, I'm ready to do this. And that's, I mean, and not everybody has that, that opportunity, but that's what the whole mentor mentee relationship, the learn to hunt stuff is. I'm just concerned. Sometimes I had an experience with a learn to hunt, um, with a learn to hunt group where the, the gal that I took out never put it, she had a hunter safety certificate. She'd never held a gun. And I was like, what? When she told me that. And so we we're going to go out on a squirrel hunt. And I was like, you know, if you don't mind, I'll carry the gun. And she's like, I actually would, would prefer that you did. Um, and we had a, we had, we didn't get a squirrel or anything. We just walked through the woods and we talked and I kind of explained a little bit more. And she goes, I wish I would have just, I'm glad that you did this because had I, my druthers, that's what I would have learned first is like, what's it like to be in the squirrel woods? And sometimes I think we want to rush people into um, things a little bit. We had a, a 12 year old young man, 12 year old go uh, hunt um, on our place. His was his first hunt this year on, in our place. He came out and actually spent a couple of evenings uh, doing some work and, and uh, you know, he, he didn't really, I mean, he was as much as anything, he was hanging around with us as we were doing work and, you know, hand me that hammer and hand me that nail. And it was actually really helpful to have him around. But, um, but um, I mean, he just kind of learned to be a part of the of the community that way too. I don't, I, I think that, um, in our, some, I, I concern, I'm concerned that sometimes in our rush to get more people involved with hunting, um, to buy licenses, which seems to be the motivation, um, that we're not, um, we're not, we're not spending enough time sort of bringing them up through it. And this, this whole idea of the cooperators, um, of, of working as cooperators and sharing the land is that's a part of it too, is that you sort of learn the whole process. Go ahead. If your first hunt is an Alaskan float trip moose hunt, um, and you've never really hunted, um, or done a whole lot of backcountry remote stuff, you're probably in over your head. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's I the thing. I mean, probably to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, no, that's a definitely. Uh, I mean, the, the point is, I think we need more quality hunters, not just more hunters out there. You know, we need, we need more people like it, if, if the main goal is more money into conservation, if we can have more people that are, are truly invested in conservation that, you know, are putting a hundred dollars into BHA and, and, you know, going to these events where they're buying, you know, sheep tickets where all the all the proceeds go to, you know, sheep conservation. That's that's the goal right there. It's not just getting a bunch of people that have, you know, never shot a gun before and are all of a sudden bombing down the steepest mountains in Colorado chasing elk and getting stuck back there and shooting something and leaving it back there because they can't hike it back out. You know, that's that's not the goal. The goal is to, you know, we we need we need quality quality hunters and i think that's where land share steps in sharing, I, the, land, sharing the land i should say 
thank you. Part part of the uh, yeah, part of the the whole point of it is is like this one gal that I took out. That I was telling you, I was like, so what'd you think? She goes, I'd like to try it again. And uh, she hasn't. We haven't had the chance to do anything, and you know, since she did, uh, I think she. Uh, uh, um, she's been in touch, and and uh, but we haven't had another event um, since then. But um, but one of the things that she said at the end of the day that was very gratifying. She says, "You know, I learned a lot about hunting today," <laughs> and and I appreciate the she appreciated the approach that that I had, and that the group had, and I felt like no matter whether that gal was going to go hunting again or not, she had a better appreciation for hunting and she certainly had a better appreciation for conservation. And she asked me a lot of questions about our farm. And we talked about that a lot, about what what it was like to own a piece of property. And she was particularly interested in conservation. So I hope, I, and I think what happens with this, um, that is even if somebody doesn't stick with it, that they'll be supportive of hunting and they'll be also supportive of conservation. Mm-hmm. That's that's the other part is that even if you're not a, even if you're not in it real deep, you at least have an understanding of it, and you're probably supportive of of all the ecosystem around it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. no, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Thanks so much, Doug, for sharing this, and I particularly like your saying about it's it's our turn. Yeah, yeah it's not ours; that's, it's that's just our one. turn. And that's, yeah. um, I mean, that's really just born from this property that um, that has been in my family for so long. And as I was doing management, I, I uh, management planning, um, I, I, it just came out of my mouth one day. And uh, the guy who I was with, the forester I was with, said, you ought to write that down. And so I did. And um, it's become a conservation mantra, motto for um for people um, in our area, around the country, and it's amazing to me how much, uh, how many uh, pieces of merchandise we've sold in other countries too. I was gonna say, you know, that there's got to be guys getting tattoos of that now on, <laughs> on their arms. <laughs> but. Maybe across their chest or something. But yeah, yeah. and and, um, and so, so sharing the land, you know, ex- it extends on that on that idea that. Um, um, there's a lot of there, there can be a lot of selfishness in this world, and, and certainly the hunting community and the conservation community isn't immune to that. So this isn't a silver bullet for any any um, uh, anything, but it's another way of getting people interested and providing opportunity, and that's what we're really trying to do. So it's sharingtheland.com is the is the is the site sharing on Instagram. It's at sharingtheland, and um, we're going to be. Um, I, I'm, we're going to be signing people up, and I'll be speaking about it at Pheasant Fest in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, in March. I think it's March 11th or that that first weekend. And between now and then, um, we did have our first event, the Doe Derby, um, where we had 20 over 20 landowners allow access, and um, um, we did some you know we did some good with harvesting um, uh, antlerless deer. And um, between now and then, the website will be getting uh, completed, and um, there's more to come. So this is 2022 is going to be a big year for it. Awesome. Thank you very much. We definitely look forward to it, Doug. Thanks a bunch for jumping on. And, uh, yeah, we'll we'll have to get you on uh, later here and kind of get a recap of how it's going. Love to do it. Thanks, guys. Right on. Have a great night. We'll talk to you.